Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. At some point in your writing journey, you'll need the help of an editor. Even best-selling authors need an editor's insight. An editor can assist at various stages of the writing journey. In the developmental phase, an editor reviews your entire manuscript and provides broad editorial feedback to help you improve the content and structure of your writing. Line editing, copy editing, and proofing come later in the editorial process. Today, we have a guest to help you understand the phases of editing, especially if you are considering self-publishing or publishing with a hybrid publisher. Our guest is Jennifer Bisbing, a book critic, editor, poet, and author of The Mystery Under the Pines. As a graduate school student who studied literary criticism, she learned that if an author writes with clarity about his or her theme, readers will have greater insight and appreciation. So that's what she does now. As an editor, she helps authors with clarity. Today, Jennifer is going to share about her own journey to self-publishing her debut novel, what to expect when you hire an editor, and how to make the most of that engagement. Welcome, Jennifer. We are so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for making time. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa and Dave and Allison. It's lovely to meet all of you. So tell us a little bit about your debut novel, Under the Pines. Can you tell us about where the idea came from and how long it took you to write it and what maybe even some of the stumbling blocks were along the way for you? So Under the Pines is based on some of my childhood. My father is a forensic scientist. And so I was doing his interviews to write his memoir. And I realized that there was a book of fiction in there for me. And he gave me permission to use some of his stories so that I could take it in a fictional direction. It's got some good little twists in it. I can't say that I always, ever thought I would be a murder mystery writer, but I am seeped in forensics since I was eight. So that's kind of some of the stories is my dad used to take me to the lab with him once in a while. So I had all of these like interesting memories that were fictional and kind of my own childhood memories. And so that was fun to play with and put those in the book. And then my process. So I also gave myself a year to write the book. I started a writing group in Chicago and I put in the ad on Craigslist that I wanted everybody to finish a book in a year. And so I worked every day. So I wrote about an hour a day for a year and we workshopped the book once a month. And then I ended up hiring one of the girls from my group to do another edit for me. And then I made the mistake of proofing it myself because I am an arrogant editor. <laughs> and I had a lot of mistakes when it went out the first time. And then I actually had it proofed again and I... I'm much happier with that process now. I hadn't really set out to be a self-published. I look for traditional, I look for an agent. I didn't find one right away and I got impatient. 
which I would say is my advice to most authors is don't get impatient with the process. Like it's really important to take your time to make sure it lands in the right place that you want it to land. I would say that was the only thing that I ever got about is how fast I turned it around. Cause I do think, you know, I've got great feedback from it. So I feel like I should have pushed a little bit more to make it a little more professional when it first went out. Do you have any specific regrets about self-publishing in particular? I know you wanted to slow down the process to make sure there were less errors when it went out, but do you wish that you would have pushed more for a literary agent or are you happy with what the self-publishing process provided you as far as like control and being able to get it out there and be your vision for the book? A little bit of both. I'll be honest. I, I love that it's my own. I love that it's my project and that I did it. I think there's a lot of value in that to have the creative control, to have the final say. Like, I think that's really important, especially because it was such a personal story. I feel like having the final say and not have it changed by a big house editor was important to me. I also think it's also what's the intention of the book. Like, I wasn't necessarily intending to be a best-selling author at the time. I've always wanted to write a book, so I wrote a book. And I feel like it was a really great book for my family, a really great book for my father and my relationship. And so I feel like, you know, I made my father cry. I made my father laugh. I think that's the best review I could ever get. Are you going to still write a memoir or did your memoir really tur- turn into this into this novel? So my dad's actually going back and working on his own memoir now. So I would probably will edit that when he is finished writing that. You use the word workshopped at every month. You workshopped something. Tell me what was that like? You had a group of writers. You got together once a month. You were determined to write this book in a year. When you say you workshopped the book, what did that entail? How, how long was it? Was it an hour, two hours? What were the deliverables or results from, from workshopping with your, with your colleagues? So it ended up, I actually had a writer group of five to start, but I think our workload was pretty heavy for five. So it ended up being three of us and we sent each other a chapter or 20 pages about a week before our meeting, which was once a month. And then we made edits for each other, anywhere from developmental to some proofing notes. And then we talked about it and we probably talked about it once a month for about three hours, probably like an hour each. And we were really like, I don't want to say strict is the right word, but we were really dedicated to it. So it didn't turn into a book club where you drink lots of wine. We got together like every month and really wanted to work on our work. Tell me, were you working at the time that you were, obviously you must have been working as an editor at the time and a book critic at the time. So you, you dedicated one hour a day. Is, was that intentional? Like, do you stop writing well after more than one hour? Or what was your thinking behind writing one hour a day? Well, I got up and I wrote like it. I had to start work. I was working for Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the time. I was their editor. So I wanted to make sure I got my writing in before I started working for them. So I got up an hour early before I had to be. I actually worked from home with them. So I had to be online. And I I got up an hour early and I made sure that I got my work done. I think that I could have written longer on a regular basis, but it was also really good to have like this fresh routine every day and come back to the story. I haven't, so I've gone, I've gone on retreats and I've written all day long 
And I've gotten a lot of work done that way. But I also feel like living in this story on a daily basis was really important to me. What does that do to you when you live in the story on a daily basis? Can you expand on that a little bit? I think you just really get to know your character. You really get to know your character inside and out. You get, you dream about the story. You have dialogues with yourself about the story on a regular basis. I'm all about habit. I do yoga every morning. So it's really important for your body to have muscle memory. I think your brain also has muscle memory in terms of writing every day. Every book I always read about writing, I always said, you need to write every day. And I didn't believe it until I actually did it. And I saw that it was a really powerful experience because what happens is every time you sit down at the computer, the work is there when you get in the habit. It's not like you're looking at a blank page very long. You're like, oh, I know what I want to move forward with on the story. I was just going to ask you about your decision to move from a memoir to a piece of fiction. And a lot of our writers make that decision often to protect identities. It gives them a little bit more freedom. But can you talk about your decision to stop writing a memoir or in your mind, you you shifted right to fiction and what prompted that shift? Well, my book is told from an eight-year-old's perspective. And I feel like that was really important is growing up with a forensic scientist and how that impacted my life emotionally. I feel like it was hard, right? You know, your father is dealing with variables that other children don't have to deal with. He would be gone in the middle of the night. And I had to like figure out what that meant to a child is why your father is leaving in the middle of the night. So I wanted that voice to be, but I also wanted her powerful. Like, I feel like I triumphed from that experience. I feel like I became a much more well-rounded person because my father loved what he did. My father was really great at what he did. And that impacted who I wanted to become. But I also like when my dad was telling me his stories, he didn't have a narrator, right? He didn't have someone to like fill out the details. My dad is a scientist, like he was very factual at the time. He has become more of a creative writer since then. So it's interesting to see where his memoir will go. But I wanted it just to be a little more dramatic, a little more a fuller story than my father was presenting. And I couldn't necessarily ghostwrite that for him because then it was too much of my voice. So I think that's where the key shift was. There was more that needed to be told and he was only telling so much and I couldn't plagiarize my father. <laughs> like That was part of it too. This will be my final question about your book, which I find so incredibly interesting. But how did you develop the voice of an eight-year-old? We talk a lot with our authors about developing the voice of your characters and your narrators, and it's so difficult for writers to do, especially new writers. Can you talk about your process for doing that? I watched every single movie with a young, powerful eight-year-old in it. So, or like, you know, young adult character. Because one thing I didn't want my character to be is this like really pretentious eight-year-old who knows everything. I don't think that that character is necessarily believable. So I really wanted my character to have like kid in her still and an idea of what was happening in her father's world. So I watched movies. It was really important to me to like see how that played off and how that was didn't go over well if the character knew too much or knew too little. So that was how I worked on that character. That's a great example of research. It's so easy just to say, well, I'm going to write the novel. I'm going to dig into it and start writing dialogue and scenes and all this stuff. 
but for you to research that, 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 that's a little, that slows you down a little bit. So I admire you for that. Talk a little bit, and we're kind of getting into now probably your work as an editor, because we really want to talk about that and what you see in all your manuscripts. That's, I think, will be very helpful to those who listen to this. So could you talk a little bit about kind of a meta narrative, meta idea? Did you think about that with your book? And obviously you did. But how did you think about that? And maybe what was that overarching theme? Or was it a network of themes? How did you structure your book? I think that I started with my dad's stories. And I knew I had this collection of stories that I wanted to incorporate it into the book. He's got some famous cases he worked on. So I kind of wanted to use those. And so that was kind of like I knew those were going to be the factors. When I started, I had no idea the ending was going to be what it currently is. And so I basically just had my character interact with those cases. And how did I have her interact with those is what developed over time, right? How did she get intermingled with them? When I edit a thriller, I'm always like, how did that character get so intermingled with that development. I think that's a really important thing is not just like tell the storyline, but how are things mixed up in between? What are the nuances that happen with the character involved with something that are unexpectedly going to happen to them? And that is because I knew myself as myself, as an eight-year-old, I could fill in details, but that's harder with just a random character. But I think that's where the research does come in. I think that's where slowing down does come in. It's like doing a first draft and getting out all the details that you know that you want in your book, but then going back and filling in those nuances is important. So let's turn to your work as an editor. Can you help our audience first understand the different types of editing an editor can provide from developmental editing to line editing to copy editing and then to proofing, which is we always say the final thing to happen to a manuscript, but can you touch on those different types of editing and how they're different from each other? So developmental is like the big picture image. So you've written a manuscript and you need someone to go through it and read to make sure the plot line works efficiently, to make sure that there's enough details that support your plot line, to make sure it's not, the pace isn't too fast, too slow. I think that's like one that can be workshop with friends and other writers. It's not necessarily where you have to start with editing, but that is a really important process for, especially for a first time author is to know what your big picture image is. If you're pulling it off, if you're pulling it off well, and then the nuances move on to like the line editing. So it's, that's where I feel like my sweet spot is, is line editing. Cause I love words. I'm a poet. So I want to make sure that your sentences flow. I want to make sure that the details that you're describing about your characters work with the personality over long over the whole story. And then I also like dialogue is really important to me. I was just having a conversation with my family about dialogue. Like, I didn't come from a big family of talkers. I came from a big family of readers. So like it's important for me that dialogue is actually accurate to what someone would kind of say, how someone would feel. I think that copy editing gets blurred in with the line editing, especially for myself. I do both. I have a tendency to like copy edit something, but then also make sure I make those line notes that I want to make sure that it's flowing correctly. And then I also blur proofing and copy editing. 
because I work with self-publishing authors, they don't have a whole lot of experience with the process. They don't have a whole lot of experience with writing necessarily. And so I offering just a proof without doing extra work doesn't seem to serve the manuscript, right? I really want the manuscript to go out in the world having a good voice. And so I have a tendency to go beyond the, so grammar, all of the style issues and things like that, that you take care of in the copy edit. I have a tendency to do both when I do a proof. If you look at a website that says what the proof should be, it's really minimalist work. It's making sure that your punctuation is correct. It's making sure that your spelling is correct. It's make, but there isn't the nuances that really needs to happen in the copy edit. So many times I get a manuscript that really should have four levels of editing and it's only had one. And so I end up doing two at a time. If an author, especially a self-published author, were to allocate money to editing services, where should they invest most of their money? Is it upfront with the developmental editing, the line editing, copy editing, proofing? So many self-published authors just get a copy editor, right? Or a proofer at the end when really they need more of this developmental stuff. So I don't know if you can speak to that, where self-publishing authors should be spending more of their money. And is there a higher price on the developmental editing than say on the copy editing? There definitely is a higher price on the developmental. It takes me a lot longer to, it takes editors a lot longer to read the manuscript several times to see the make sure that the plot is working for the story. So I want to say just a little bit about reviews and Amazon, you know, things like that. You can have a great plot and then someone will tear it apart because there's too many typos. So someone will like really give you bad reviews based on either your grammar or based on something, you know, as much as flow, right? Like all of your paragraphs start with the something like that can really trip up. But the super critical review isn't necessarily ever addressing the developmental edit. So rarely do you see like, oh, this plot is horrible. Or do you see something that says, I mean, they might say your characters aren't believable, which might be something that they would catch in a developmental. So it's really like, you need both. For me, as an author, I want to make sure my story works. I want someone to give me feedback that says, I'm not sure I believe that your character would do this, or I'm not sure your timeline is right in terms of them getting from point A to point B as fast as they did. But that's me wanting to write a great book. Now, someone who it's their first time writing, they're not quite as particular as I am. I think the proofing and the copy editor is really important because I think you can get stunted as a writer if you get too many bad reviews, them saying that your book isn't great. And I think I'm really about supporting writers. Like that's what I do. I either view myself as a teacher or a therapist for writers, right? It's like, I really want to help them move forward with their writing and keeping them away from bad reviews. Because I have seen so many of myself publishing others get a bad review and they're just devastated. And I was just like, well, one, you need to go look at best-selling authors reviews, which are usually they're thrown under the bus, just like the rest of us. So it's not personal, but it's important that they actually have those fine details set so that they don't get the bad reviews, especially up front. I love what you said on your website. I think under your services, you talked about how your friends and your family say it's good, but now you need an objective point of view. And we always talk about 
don't ask your wife or your best friend or those people to read and give you honest feedback because they're going to pump sunshine, right? So I, I love that you're, you're this objective point of view and that's what a good editor does. Is, are there any other signs of what makes a great editor if, a, if an author was vetting editors for their own project? What should they be looking for? I can only speak to myself and what I have done. So I was, my, my grad school was, I was a literary criticism so you need to look at somebody who actually has background in stories, right? I think that's an important part for an editor is not just someone who knows the mechanics, but somebody who understands story and somebody who is in the world of story. So that means either someone who has written a lot of books or someone who has written stories, just something that like shows that they have an idea of plot more than just the idea of mechanics. That said, then I went back. I had all that background as I read so many books in grad school, mainly fiction. And so I went back, then I went back and learned the mechanics over again. Like, I feel like grad school didn't teach me the mechanics of writing necessarily. And so I went back to to get my certificate in Chicago manual style at the University of Chicago. And I think learning from somebody who actually edited <laughs> the Chicago manual style was like the biggest gift to myself as a writer and as an editor. So really looking for somebody else who has, or looking for an editor that has both the background of story and the mechanical background, I think it doesn't necessarily mean they can't have it just an English degree, but I think it's important to see what their background is and just see other books that they've edited. I think that the ones that I trust my work with have either like won awards with self-publishing or they have done a lot of them. I think it's also about quantity. When I was green at this, I am a much better editor now than I have had hundreds of books under my belt. Tell me why the Chicago Manual Style Certification was one of the greatest gifts for you as an editor. What did you realize you didn't really know as an editor when you, when you got certified? how much was involved. One, like how consistency is really important to the whole work. Well, one thing I think to look professional is to have all these inconsistencies that happen or have all these mistakes takes away from what I want the people to, what I want my readers to actually get from my book is the plot, is the story, is the character. So if there's all of these small little errors, all these style little issues, then they're not going to take away from it what I want them to take away from it. It's great to get a refresher about commas and semicolons and all those things that you really forget since you're in high school. I was thinking we should move to the difference between self-publishing and hybrid publishing. There are actually multiple definitions of hybrid publishing. So could you clear those up for us? So it's a traditional pub, lots of times a traditional publisher who is then bringing on hybrid publishing, right? They have a company, they have an established name, they have an established house of editors and marketing, and then they realize they're not necessarily making enough money on those traditional things. So they decided to kind of bring in self-publishing in some ways. I think one of the big differences is one, you kind of know what that publishing house is all about. So if their focus is like memoirs or their focus is there's one in town here that like focuses on historical Montana things. Like, so you kind of know what their niche is with a hybrid publisher. 
And then they're bringing on other authors that are in that same niche. And then it's vetted submissions, which is very different from self-publishing. So they're going to look for books that actually either fit into their idea or their genres or ones that they know something about the author or know something about that they're writing about, either fiction or nonfiction. And that doesn't actually happen in self-publishing world in terms of vetted submissions. And then part of the hybrid is that they produce the book under their name, their own name and their ISBNs. And so for self-publishing, you usually like create your own publishing house or create your own, like I did in terms of mine. So then it also follows, I think a hybrid follows possibly more the standard industries for publishing more than self-publishing does because they just have a little more input and a little more control of that. I think both actually have great design departments. I think that's a really key. Most of the self-publishing houses that I work with have great designers on their team or that they freelance out to their authors. Do you have to pay for hybrid publishing though? That I think that's always the question that people don't understand. It's like you get their imprint, you get their resources as far as editors and designers, but you're still paying for those services. Is that correct? You're paying to work with this publisher. You are, and you're probably paying the same amount, if not, I don't know exactly prices in different industries, different areas, but probably the same amount as you would with a self-publisher. And then you are giving some of your rights away to the hybrid. So mainly with self-publishing, you keep all of your rights, you keep all of your royalties, and then the hybrid, you're getting giving some of that away. So it's kind of about balancing out which one is important to you is to have that name on your book. And then not maybe get some of the same royalties amounts, which I think not always the most important thing for authors. I think myself, you know, I don't make a huge amount of money on my book. So that's not necessarily the main focus of my book. It's kind of like a brand name, right? Like that's the way that you have to look at it. Like if you're someone who always has to wear Prada, you need like a publishing house that has a big name. But I think in terms of what you're getting from a self-publishing house and what you're getting from a hybrid house isn't that much different as long as you work with an editor that has a great reputation in both circumstances. I think what's at stake for the hybrid publishing is to make sure they are hiring editors and designers that keep in line with their standards of their, their company. So, and I'm not sure that because the name is going out on that, I'm not sure self-publishing houses have that same So let's say someone has said to you, here's my first draft of this novel. I would like you to do a developmental edit. Now, tell me about how you process something. Let's say you said yes, you start on the project. Are you reading through every word of that novel? Are you maybe focusing on the first kind of the introduction, maybe the the beginning part of it, and then you scan the rest? That's just a lot of reading. So how do you, how do you really, how do you do your work? Yeah. How do I do my work and not obsess over the fact that I'm probably getting paid, you know, $5 an hour sometimes. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So like, if you do my manuscript review, we'll start there instead of a developmental edit. So my manuscript review is I will probably read your book twice. I will give you notes on thought. I'll give you notes on flow. I'll give you notes on grammar. I'll give you notes on style. All not inline notes, but basically a report about what I, where I think your book is going. And 
what work I think it needs. And I think that's what's really going back to like having an objective opinion is like someone not in your family, someone not as a friend saying, I think your book needs A, B, and C. And that comes with my expertise. Like I've read so many books, I know kind of like what works, what doesn't work and how we can quickly fix those things. Do you have any tips for writers on showing versus telling? You know when someone's a good storyteller, right? Like they're, you're engaged in a conversation with them and you're like, oh, this person's a great storyteller. Like I want to hear what's going to happen next. I am fascinating about what they're talking about. That's what has to come across in the showing is basically you're filling in enough details, but keeping people curious as you go. So so so-and-so is standing at the corner. I want to know everything about that corner. You can't just tell me that they're standing on a corner. You want to know like, oh, there's a car that's reached to a stop at the corner that they're standing at. Or this is a corner where so-and-so had their accident three years ago. Like able to put in like nuances about that corner instead of just they're standing on a corner. Especially like in memoirs, people like to to think, they like to reflect, and then they think about the past as yeah. opposed to setting up the past as a scene. That's, That's a great phrase. To do if, you're, if you're writing about somebody who has already deceased, but is part of your history, it's really I hard to do. Like current things to your current life to that circumstance. Like that's what I like to do. It's like, well, tell me why that imp- why that spot would be important to you now. It doesn't have to be important to that person when they were alive, but like you really want this visceral experience when you're reading something. And I think it's just important to like add your own visceralness to that memoir situation. And we always get that question, or we're, that's our big advice to our writers. Often is you've got to show versus tell, and so whenever we can get somebody else to help us explain it, we're we're very happy for that. What do you do with authors who push back and say, "No, I don't like that feedback"? They ignore you, or maybe they feel overwhelmed by the feedback, and they just are paralyzed moving forward. How do you move help move people forward through the feedback phase, especially when it's not all positive? A personal note on that, like I recently thought my chat book was done. I recently was like, okay, I've had it edited. I've spent a very long period of time writing this book. And then I said it to an award-winning poet and was like, I got so many notes back that I was scared. And she's a great poet. So I really wanted to take, and I think that's about trusting your editor. So it's really important to trust your editor. It's really important to know that you dive with her ideas and him or her's ideas so that you can trust them and move forward with their notes. But pushing back, I think is important, but it's also about the intent of your book. Sometimes, especially in memoir, like you have certain things that you really want to tell the world, even though I don't think they're necessarily important to the storyline, you really want to tell them. And, or you're really attached to a character that I don't think is a strong enough character to be in your book. So it's about pushing back about, if your audience really will understand something that I won't understand or that your editor isn't in that world. I've done some fantasy books that I'm like, oh, I want to cut this because it's not moving me forward. But to the fantasy world, it does move people forward. Well, this has been an incredible conversation, Jennifer. Thank you so much. You've given us so many nuggets of wisdom and just insight and We're just so excited to share this with our audience. Thank you for being with us today. 
Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. I love talking about books. So, you know, this was a great pleasure for me. All right, Dave, let's move to our words of the episode. I'll go first. All right. My word is another cat related word, and that was very unintentional, but I guess I'm going to be really showing you my true crazy cat lady tendencies. (laughs) And the word is caterwaul, to utter a long wailing cry, howl or screech. And it's a Middle English word, and it comes from cotter, cat, and rollin, cry like a cat. So I guess you can use it to describe a human's expression, like a howl or a screech, but it's actually most used when describing like a cat, like especially like when they're in heat, they caterwaul when cats are in heat. That I've noticed that cats in heat make the same caterwaul noise that they do when in pain. So there you go, caterwaul. You can you can imagine that horrible noise, right? It's a great word to describe. Maybe using like a in poetry or in a more image driven scene, caterwaul. In the right context, you could use a word like that that most people wouldn't know, but they would they would be able to infer the meaning right. because of the context. Right, yeah, right. that's a great word. So my word of the episode is irony. So I decided to use or clarify a common word. There was that song a couple decades ago, Isn't It Ironic by Alanis Morissette. I think her album, that album actually sold millions and millions of copies. But anyway, she had all these different what were so-called ironies in, in in the song. And one of them was like, it's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. And the big criticism of that song was that none of those were real ironies. So here's the definition. As a noun, it means this idea, it's the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic events. So I think this is what's called verbal irony. There's several types of irony, dramatic irony and a couple others, but and situational irony, but this is verbal irony. So it's a figure of speech that communicates the opposite of what is said. And while sarcasm is a form of irony that is directed at a person with the intent to criticize. So actually, sarcasm is kind of a form of irony. So here would be a phrase like, don't go overboard with gratitude. That might be a form of irony if you're saying it to someone who is a complete ingrate. Anyway, there's different types of irony, but I think just really understanding what irony is, is, is was really helpful to me. I, I remember that song. That was kind of the soundtrack of my college years. So I have it playing now in my head the rest of my day. It's going to be an earworm. <laughs> All right, those words of the episode round out our episode. And I think that's a wrap, right, Dave? I think that's it. All right, I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. <laughs> <laughs>